Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the lovely Lizette Kensey. Lizette, how are you this morning? I'm well, Tom. Thanks, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, beautiful rainy weather we've been having here in Perth. I know, indeed. It has been a bit different from usual, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. My wife was telling me it's very Auckland-like at the moment, you know, days upon days of rain. But, yeah, we'll leave that there. So I know a little bit about you, but for those who haven't heard of you yet, can you tell us a, a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? It's entirely likely that people haven't heard of me. <laughs> I, I am a senior lecturer at the moment at UWA, the University of Western Australia, where I am in the um, in School of Psychological Science. I teach in a domain called work psychology. And that covers basically aspects of people, culture, and well-being in the workplace. And I have a special soft spot for teaching people about human factors and work health and safety management. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. I, I gather from accent and name, uh, not originally from Australia? I definitely know. No, I think most of your listeners might actually be able to guess where I am from. If I ask them to take a guess, then, then most people get it right. Often they go a bit careful and say, you're from Europe. And, and that's indeed uh, I am. But within Europe, I'm from this tiny little country called the Netherlands. That's where I grew up. That's where I spent my first 20 odd years. So not a native English speaker. I have been in Australia for about 15 years now mm -hmm. and still have not been able to get rid of the accent. So <laughs> Accents are not something you should try and get rid of. I think that's part of your identity in that. But what led you to Australia? Did you, did you go straight from the Netherlands 
to Australia or is there a bigger story oh, there? There, there? There was a bit of touring around Europe and even a, a little bit of a journey into the United States before I came to Australia. But I ended up doing a romantic thing. I followed my husband who found a job originally in Sydney, but pretty soon after that, that, that moved to Brisbane. So my, my first job in Australia was actually not at UWA, but it was over at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. I, I, I was a postdoc there. But yeah, before that, I've, I've traveled all over Europe. I, I, I worked in Belgium. I worked in the Netherlands. I worked in the UK in consulting for a while for a, a, a small consultancy company called Human Reliability Associates, and I studied in the States. That's 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 where I learned most about safety management, actually. So originally, I'm, I'm, I'm this eternal student, Tom. <laughs> my, my dad didn't like it much. It took him a little while to get on board with that. The, the, the first study I did was, was a Master of Industrial Engineering and Management Science. And, and in that course, I met some wonderful, wonderful people. And this, this was a really interesting course. It was a course where they combined teaching you engineering and logistics and sort of all the, the, the hard parts, the technical parts about running an organization, but combined it with the people part of how do I look after the people in the business and make sure that they do well and, 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 and are safe and, and feel okay and stay healthy, things like that. And for the thesis that I did in that course, the, the focus on safety was not huge in that course, So, but I met a wonderful, wonderful person who supervised my master's thesis there. His name was Cherik van der Schaaf. And he introduced me to that whole domain of, of, of human factors, human factors in the workplace, and, and how we can do a better job of designing workplaces so that people are less likely to make mistakes and more likely to recover from that. And it was through him that I think I got bit by the, by, by the safety bug. And so, so I finished that thesis and I graduated from the course and I felt that working in, in, in safety management was such an important thing to do. I mean, Tom, I was young, right? And, and, and being young, you, you, know, <laughs> you have all these, these, these things around. This is morally the right thing to do, right? And, and, and you're not tainted by, by reality just yet. But I felt that even, even though I had finished that master's course, that I didn't quite know enough about how to do safety in a workplace. And that if I would just go out there and pretend that I knew everything that would eat me on the inside and, and I wouldn't do right by the workplace that I would end up working at. So, so yeah, that's, that, that was my first step on becoming an eternal student, Tom, I think. Because that's when I went and applied at a variety of universities in the United States. I think what inspired me there is that my dad worked for an American company and he always came home with stories around how they did safety in, in his workplace. I said, okay, so in, in America, they must, you know, hold safety, you know, in, in, in a high regard. So it's probably a lot that we can learn from there. And so I went and studied another master's course industrial safety management, which afterwards I felt really prepared me to start working in that field. So that's what I ended up doing. But of course, I didn't end up working back in the Netherlands. I ended up working in Belgium. I had a job at the university there for a while. And, and then 
I came through this, this master's thesis supervisor. I, I ended up meeting what, what would then become my boss at Human Reliability Associates. I met David Embry and, and ended up working for him in consulting for a while. And I really enjoyed that. I ended up being able to help, and I mostly work in, in worked in chemical industry, but a little bit in, in bill operations as well. And what I really enjoyed there was being able to help a number of different organizations within a short span of time with safety-related problems that they had. And then eventually, I bumped into a topic that I thought, this needs more research. This needs a longer time to actually unpack what's happening here and learn a little bit more about how we can make people better at this. And and and, and that was to do with near misses, Tom. Mm. So near misses is where you almost have an accident, but something happened that stopped it from developing in its tracks and that stopped it from becoming a full-blown accident with, with, with negative consequences. And, and, and what we learned from looking at a lot of near misses that had happened in, in, in these organizations that we worked with is that it's usually where, where people get blamed for being the part where things go wrong, for making an error. They're also the part that makes it more likely that this gets detected in time and corrected in time. People can be very clever in that detecting and, and correcting. And we weren't entirely clear on how people do that, Tom. And 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 that's why that idea of doing a PhD on on that topic came up. And so I ended up collecting an awful lot of near misses and looked at that part where people detected something that was developing into a problem situation, but arrested it on time. What is it that they do? Are there even procedures that help them do that? Are there no procedures? So, Usually there were no procedures. It was based on people's knowledge, you know, having experience in that part of their work. They took a lot of professional pride in that. It was actually lovely talking to people about that part of neomesis rather than focusing always on the what went wrong. The what went mm -hmm. right opened a whole new area of conversations. And, and, and with that PhD across the studies that I did there, I learned a lot about that recovery process and, and, and how to support people to be better able at, at doing that. And, and ever since then, I continued working in academia. It's not that I haven't, you know, set foot in, in organizations outside academia anymore. That's the nice thing with work psychology, right? It's very applied. How do we use our psychology skills and knowledge? In, in the workplace. So, so with, with work psychology, you collect your data from workplaces and you help workplaces become better places for people to work. So, so yeah, not, not definitely not lost touch with workplaces outside of academia. But what I love about being in academia is the whole evidence-based approach. We're there to make sure that we're just not willy-nilly taking an off-the-self off-the-shelf solution and implementing it without knowing that it is the right thing to do. So we make sure that we have an understanding of what the problem is and we make sure that whatever we're implementing to help deal with that problem, that we're actually evaluating whether that was the right solution or not. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So the evidence-based practice part is what I really love about my job. So on, on that journey coming here, you know, via via Belgium, via the Netherlands, via the UK, and then eventually via, via Brisbane. I've, I've, I've learned a lot about safety. I continued working in safety. 
and then eventually by 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 getting back to UWA and, and working in that wider domain of work psychology, the whole well-being side of things has become in scope for, for the area that I work in as well. Whereas first it was more about the, the, the keeping people safe. Now it's become also about how to keep people healthy and how to make sure that people thrive in workplaces. And that brings me fully back to the learnings that I had in my initial master's degree. <laughs> Imagine that. So that ended up being useful in the long run with, with, with this, this big journey into safety management in between. Excellent. Excellent. You've mentioned, you mentioned a few things there I'll just touch on. Most people I know when they start off work in any type of role where they possibly look at helping people, they start off for these really high ethical reasons that they want to make the world a better place or want to improve this. You mentioned you were young and, and weren't tainted. Are you tainted now by life and experience? Tainted, I think, is too big a word, Tom. I'm thinking I'm less naive. That might be a better way or more realistic. Mm -hmm. But I still firmly believe in that we can do a good job and we can make workplaces better. And through the research that I've done and also through the students that graduate from my programs and that I see go out into the workplace and make their own contributions there, I know that we're actually succeeding. It's little bits at the time. You shouldn't have too lofty a goal, you know, from the get-go, but just keep chipping away at things. And yeah, so so definitely not tainted just yet and still still having that desire to just make workplaces better, safer and healthier. Yeah, no, that's good. Near misses is an interesting topic. Did you find when you were basically investigating near misses, researching, should I say, that there might have been a bit of an issue that there is a likelihood that a lot of near misses don't get reported for whatever reason. There definitely is a strong likelihood of that happening. There's a lot of factors that play in that, Tom. I think first and foremost is how the system is introduced and how the system is used by management in, in organizations that have set up a near-miss reporting system. As long as they make it ultimately clear, and also not just talking the talk, but walking the talk in that regard as well, that this is a learning system, that it's not in place to apportion blame on anyone who had the unfortunate you know, near-miss happening to them. If they go like, this is about learning. This is about how we can make sure that nobody gets hurt. This is not about punishing somebody for having made an error and then walking that talk as well. Like I said, I've, I've seen an example of an organization that had a very successful near miss reporting system that at one day, one bad day, decided that, but this near miss that this person reported is actually such a bad near miss there should be consequences and 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 there were consequences for that person and then after that obviously you can guess all the near miss reporting dried up and it took a lot of effort and a lot of redesigning and and reworking that system before people had faith in it again that it would be used for the right reasons the learning reasons rather than the punitive reasons so that is a really key thing in there that it's designed in that way and used in that way that the aim of the, the reporting system is is learning the other thing is feedback 
we found really important. If it's just a black hole in which your NEMIS report disappears, and as a reporter, you never hear back and you never see anything change based on what you've reported. Well, there's no use in doing this because nothing will ever come out of it. And that is a good, a, a quick way to, to have the NEMIS reporting stream dry up. Yeah. yeah. And so just reporting back, even if nothing is going to change, a thank you for your report, a follow up with, you know, the, the reporter. Having a trusted person often makes a difference as well, that it doesn't go straight to management. The more successful systems that I have been familiar with over the years have somebody that is part of the operating workforce. So it's somebody working at that same level and having been in the same job or walked in the shoes of the people that end up reporting into the system. That makes a big, big, big difference. And what throughout the course of my PhD, when I wanted to learn more about what went right in the NEMIS rather than what went wrong, I found that most NEMIS reporting systems really only focused on the what went wrong with the idea that if you learn about root causes involved in near misses and you tackle those that you wouldn't have the big accidents happening that would result from those same root causes. But if we're also using that near miss reporting system to learn about what did people do well, people take a bit more pride in reporting that, hey, I was successfully able to detect and, and recover from, from this issue here. And there's new lessons, new types of lessons to be learned from the NEMIS reporting system then. And, and wherever we, you know, included NEMIS reporting systems from particular organizations in the, in, the, in the research project, we did find that there was an uptake in the number of reports that were put into the system through that. So, so that's another way to get, you know, more and more input and more results out of that system as well, focusing on the recovery side of of near misses there yeah yeah i agree i think i think you, you talked about a couple of things that people have literally told me time and time again if you ever want to kill off near miss reporting start apportioning blame and, and giving dire consequences to people and yeah lack of action or lack of transparency with action certainly will dry it up absolutely all right you're seeing a lecturer at the university of western australia I know that's an interesting term, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how you define senior. I mean, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Does that I'm, mean I'm, if I'm... you're allowed to, to have senior moments? Or, or... <laughs> <laughs> I have them every day. But anyhow, if you were to generalise, who who are your typical students? I know. So the the, the programs of when I said I'm senior lecturer I might I might have needed to mention I also coordinate two courses at UWA they're they're called the Master of Business Psychology and the Graduate Certificate of Business Psychology so when I speak about typical students I should probably talk about the typical students in those two programs right so their graduate certificate is a relatively short course you can complete it part time within one year. And the typical students we get into those programs tend to be professionals who have been in their job for, say, at least five years, sometimes even more. I get, believe it or not, Tom, I get students in my course that are older than I am, and that warms my heart. You know, being an internal student myself, seeing other people do that, no, no matter how old they are. The people, those, those mature age students that we do attract into the courses, 
they're often in in a work health and safety management role and wanting to learn more or we could have and, and that's not a typical target audience we could have people for example that worked in technical job roles that have more of an engineering and a technical background and that through being promoted through the ranks in the organization suddenly find themselves in charge of a team of people that they have to lead but now they're dealing with people instead of with equipment and tools and machines and computers and how do i lead a team of, of people and and they would typically not have had much training in in their earlier development to teach them how to do that effectively and how to keep your workforce motivated and engaged and it's those types of people that we tend to attract into the course and believe it or not tom even human resource professionals and I think that is a side effect of us taking that psychology lens to the workplace. And of course, there's a lot of wonderful things that you learn in studying human resource management, but that very specific focus on what can we learn from psychology to make the workplace better, that's not always a part of human resource training. Mm. So to add on to that re human resource training, we often see human resource professionals come to us and, and study the types of coursework that we have with us. So I'm, I'm harping on a lot about the mature age students because that is really where I see our target audience, mm -hmm. definitely in that shorter course, also to an extent in that master's course. And we do see a fair few of our mature age students who start with that shorter graduate certificate continue on in the master's course. They go, oh, but there's so much more to learn. And they just, you know, over time, keep chipping away at, you know, a couple of coursework units per semester, not studying full time, doing this outside of the work hours. And I think that's really exciting. And these people come in with a lot of stories to share. So you're teaching them about what research has shown works to make the workplaces better and they go like oh I've seen this applied in practice and that works here and but I've seen problems there so they come with stories to share and and that makes it really special and I think really valuable to be teaching them but obviously we also have a lot younger students there's also students that come straight out of an undergraduate and let's say they're typically psychology students. We take students that have other undergraduate degrees, obviously, as well. But the psychology students that come out of their undergraduate degree and, and they might have started wanting to be a clinical psychologist, you know, with that one-on-one -on -one patient to psychologist uh, setting. Like, this is not really for me. I don't think I can do that. I think that's too difficult, too emotionally demanding. But what else can I do with that psychology knowledge? And then, hey, presto, you can work in, in, in that space where you apply your psychology knowledge, but in a workplace setting. But you're not necessarily dealing with mentally unwell people that, that, that need a clinical psychologist, but you're making sure that you use what you know about psychology to, to, to help people from just being sort of plodding along uh, for lack of better words to to moving them into that they're really flourishing in the in the in the workplace they're happy they're more motivated they're more productive and and that's that's not their area where, where those students with that undergraduate degree in psychology can then move on to without needing ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To move into a, a, a specifically clinical role. So, so, so that's the other audience. And of course, I'm excited to see that students find their feet in, in, in that area. But... I'm definitely excited about the more mature age students that, that make their way to, to our courses. Good, good, good. Amongst many things you've written academically, you've also written a chapter of Australian Institute of Health and Safety Book of Knowledge on work design. That I have with my wonderful colleague, Laura Fruin. Yeah, I've read it. I I, did, I read it as part of my research before we got into this. Why is the book of it's knowledge? It's a lengthy chapter, Tom. I know, I know. I read it. Not probably in as depth as I should have, but but you know, I read it. But why is the book of knowledge important to safety professionals, in your opinion? The entire book of knowledge, or just that chapter, Tom? Oh, we'll go with the entire one to start with. I I think. It's and, and I had known even before writing this chapter, obviously, about the, the book of knowledge. I even used some chapters in, in some of the coursework units that I teach at UWA. I think where the Australian Institute of Health and Safety are doing really well is helping the work health and safety profession become a profession. And this book of knowledge, a body of knowledge, I think it's actually it's not book of knowledge, this body of knowledge is one way to help drive that professionalization of, 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 of this work domain. There's, I think most chapters are written the same way that Laura and I went about the chapter that, that, that we did. So there's usually domain experts that are selected by the manager of the OHS body of knowledge on a particular topic. This is an area where where you're the expert, you do research in this area. So what would you say that an OHS professional needs to know about that area? And so those those researchers, those domain experts, do the legwork of finding out all there is to know and that professional needs to know about that particular work health and safety related topic and they're distilling it into what's hopefully easy to read and easy to digest chapter so that the OHS professional who might not have the same type of access to university libraries and search engines and and access to scientific papers as, as the people who write those chapters have but that gives them that access by virtue of having it all combined into that chapter. The instructions that, that you get when you're writing a chapter, Tom, 
they 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 also include make sure that this is an entry into further reading for people who want to learn more and that's why there's such a long reference list at the back that contains all those papers where the evidence has been drawn from that goes into the chapter and even though there are very good programs around the entire country and accredited programs even by the OHS accreditation body that train people up to become a work health and safety professional, within the few years that it takes to become that professional, you cannot possibly cover all the different chapters of that OHS body of knowledge. And those chapters continue to be updated. And of course, as a professional, you need to keep your skill set updated as well, right? So as the new developments happen and new chapters start to arrive, there are new resources for the OHS professionals to look at. And they're all combined and easily accessible, freely available online in, you know, on the OHS Body of Knowledge web page. And, and, and that's a really good place for an OHS professional to continue their professional development. And what's in there is not just written by experts in the domain of that particular chapter that they've wrote, but it's peer reviewed by not just other academics in the field, but it's also reviewed by a group of people that practice in this area. And that can give you the kind of feedback that goes like, well, as a professional, I have no idea what you're saying there. You need to clarify this a little bit more, or you need to demonstrate that through a few examples. So the review process before that chapter is actually published online is quite an extensive review process as well, but it's, it's aimed at making sure that it's a good quality product that sits there. So I definitely think that the OHS body of knowledge is a, is a great resource for, for safety professionals. Yeah, I, I, and I'm not just saying that because I wrote one. <laughs> I know I agree with you. I agree with you, but uh, I'll throw this out there, and it's 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 not a negative at all. But I'm just curious. Do you think many people read it? That's a really good question, Tom. Do you know how in in Western Australia we have those OHS body of knowledge breakfast that Alistair Milne mm. is 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 organising? Yeah. They're very well attended, and I'd like to think that those people that do attend have actually read the chapter. That's the topic of discussion for the breakfast. I would like to think that they're just the top of the iceberg and that beyond them, there is a, a, a lot more people who read. I think this would be a good question to ask, and I'm not sure whether you ever had that person on, on your podcast. The, the manager of the OHS body of knowledge, hmm. they might have, or even the people behind the website of the Australian Institute of Health and Safety, they probably would have download statistics, right? That show yeah. how often particular chapters have been downloaded. Um, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll that be... might give, Of course, downloading doesn't mean that you actually read it, but at least it shows the intention to, mm. to read it. I yeah. make sure that, that my students, and, and, and that's usually big classes at, at the time, always download a few chapters of the OHS body of knowledge and that they're aware of its existence. So. Yeah. From people I know, there's definitely a lot of people that use the body of knowledge, but I'm well aware that I do not know everybody in the safety profession. Yeah. Even though it's a small world, there's, there's many people that I do not know. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, rather topical considering the events of this morning, bicycles. You wrote one academic paper about behaviour changing following 
mandatory distances between cyclists and cars, particularly when you're being when you're overtaking cyclists. I used to teach road safety to a group of people in Queensland who were basically, how shall we put it? They were basic, they'd done the wrong thing, various types of behaviours, and were potentially facing losing their licence. So I spoke to a few people. So curious, what sort of changes in behaviour did occur after those laws were introduced? So this is based on a, a law change in, in Western Australia regarding the minimum overtaking distance, right? Yep. So this is a study, again, that I did with the same co-author as the co-author for the, the work design chapter in the OHS Body of Knowledge, so Laura Pruin. This project is really her baby. She's originally from Germany. She grew up just across the border from, you know, the country where, where I lived. And and in in especially in the Netherlands, and that's what Laura knew about people from the Netherlands where I'm from, riding a bicycle is like part of everyday life. Everybody does that across all age groups. And it it it's the mode of the mode of transport that gets you from A to B. So that's how I grew up. And Laura asked me to be a co-author on that paper because she knew, being a Dutch person, that I would be interested in, in bike riding, that I'm a cyclist myself. I have to say, I find riding a bicycle in Australia rather scary. It's, <laughs> it's definitely a different experience to how it is in the Netherlands. But indeed, that, that overtaking law and giving sight... That's one move to make it more more safe for, for cyclists on the road. So so yeah, I was fortunate enough to be invited by Laura to 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 be part of of that publication. So we measured before and after the the change in legislation. It's a self reported study, obviously. So it's people responding about questions, uh, responding to questions about their own behavior. Obviously, when you do observations, you might get slightly more accurate. This is just taking it in good faith that the people accurately respond with what reflects best reflects their, their behavior. Obviously, it was an anonymous survey, so there was no, no chance that we would know the identity of the respondent, and that makes it a bit more likely that they respond with the truth, right? So what we did find, comparing pre- and post-law change, that indeed people reported to give cyclists more distance when they were overtaking. So that was evidence in, in our books that that, that that law change was effective. But what we also measured is how they would behave beyond just giving the cyclist more space. So we measured whether there was any evidence of aggressive behavior towards the cyclist. That is, you know, rolling down the window of honk or, or honking or shouting out of the windows that, that nearly makes you jump off your bike if you're not expecting it. It can be can be quite quite scary, even if it's just verbal aggression, even if it's not, you know, the, the physical aggression. So we measured self-reported behavior of that kind as well, pre the law change and post the law change. And we found that actually there was more self-reported aggression towards cyclists after the law change. So we sat down and we had long conversations about this, like what might explain that sort of counterintuitive finding. And, and we ended up arguing, Tom, that this might have been that the law change put cyclists more on the radar of car drivers. Like, now, oh my God, now they officially have 
more space on the road and we have to deal with them in, in, in you know, a more intrusive manner so that they actually felt a little bit more aggressive to having to deal with cyclists on the road as a result of this, this new law coming into place. So, yeah, rather... Yeah. I, I try to stick to bike paths, Tom, for as yeah. much as I, I can. I, I think to it's avoid safer. Such, such interactions, but the, unfortunately, they're, they're not everywhere yet through, throughout the. Yeah, look, I, I can honestly say the people I spoke to, it wasn't so much hatred. Hatred's a big word, but extreme dislike of cyclists, them being on the road, you know, we'd get this entitled thing. They break the law. They even got, they even got, you know, slang names like mammals, you know, middle-aged men in Lycra and stuff like that. A lot of negative stuff. And it was just like, whoa, I certainly wouldn't. I've I've been to Sweden and, and, and seen everyone cycling around in peace and harmony and doing these things. And it's certainly not like that in Australia. But I uh, know oh, we have a way to go, Tom, but <laughs> potentially we, we will get there at some point. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to ask you probably a few quick questions. All right. Basically, any system which involves humans, is it inevitable that there will be errors because humans are involved? I think so. Yes, Tom. I think that is inevitable. Good. Good answer. Okay. You um, agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I... I've sort of got a few follow-up questions like bang, bang, bang. All right. If errors, would you classify as errors as unpredictable events with negative consequences or something similar? No, no. I, I think, Tom, based on the on the training in human factors that I have had, I would have to say we can predict potentially not all errors, but an awful lot of errors we can predict. There are performance shaping factors or performance influencing factors that make it more likely in certain contexts mm. for particular errors to happen. Yep. So you have to design your systems following those human factors principles to be more forgiving, to build in barriers that those errors, if they do happen, don't lead to disastrous consequences. Build your systems so that they are less likely to happen, but definitely predictable based on our understanding of, of human factors, which is basically the knowledge about human limitations and human capabilities, you know, in, in interacting with systems. Yeah. They're definitely predictable to, to a large extent they are. Because if they're predictable, we should be able to better manage them, which is what you basically just talked about. Do we spend too much time trying to, in workplaces, do we spend too much time focusing on trying to eliminate all errors or failures in systems rather than trying to make the systems more resilient because we know the failures, we know the errors are going to occur. Should we spend putting more resources into recovery for when they happen rather than just trying to, I don't know, do that unachievable zero incident zero harm i would have to agree with you that tom i i do think it is important to just acknowledge that yes in some circumstances errors are likely to happen so make our system more more tolerant more more resilient that if they do happen that we don't have any negative consequences it's learning through error 
as an individual, of course, learning through error as an organization is important, but this this time I'm, I'm talking as an individual, is one way to really solidify your learning. You try something, you see that it doesn't work, but from that you find out how it does work, right? So if we can, and, and of course there are limits to if, if there's very high consequence, high risk scenarios, then, then maybe we should be a little bit less inclined to allow people to just try things and see what happens. But within safe context, I, I think it's actually valuable to allow for errors to happen and to accommodate for those in the systems. And that's why we should be spending some attention within organizations, if possible at all. Yeah, good. All right. Some organizations, I believe, lay out these extremely thorough, or say thorough, I won't say complicated, but extremely thorough policies and procedures about how to do every single step in a process. And, you know, I, I, I have a gut feeling that that's actually based on more minimising legal liability than anything. Is it possible that if we limit, if we if we tell people how to do everything, every step by step, instead of actually letting them think that we are actually limiting the chances of them using their imagination and therefore limiting the possibilities for, I don't know, improving systems. I, I agree, Tom. I think there's indeed a risk involved in over-proceduralizing everything. Of course, taking the, the perspective from, from organizational managers, accident have happened, we do an analysis of the accident, we find out, oh, okay, this wasn't covered in a procedure, or maybe the procedure wasn't quite right. So the the the, the quite immediate go-to very often after instance is let's just write another procedure. And then the whole procedure books become really unwieldy. And, and and start to prescribe in, in that great amount of detail that you mentioned what workers need to do. A study I did, it's almost 10 years ago now that we did that study, time does fly indeed, Tom, but with maintainers at, 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 at a mining organisation here in Western Australia, uh, around the use of procedures and how procedures were managed, we investigated how they felt about the procedures and this was a combination of both an interview study where we had lengthy conversations with procedure and users as well as later on surveyed a larger group when we had settled on the types of questions that we needed to ask to to collect more data there the people we talked to said it takes away your thinking it takes away your professional pride if you must always follow a procedure but you come to a job where A, the procedure might not necessarily work because there's something quite specific about this that doesn't fit how it is written up in the procedure. And B, the procedure might be very lengthy and, you know, a better way of doing it. So if it takes away the thinking, it doesn't encourage people to use their professionalism to the same extent. So you have to find that careful balance between 
what has to be captured in a procedure because we need to make sure that people do it in this particular way because otherwise safety hazards xyz will happen versus that we can give the people a bit of freedom to go about this in the way that they think is best as long as they do that with the correct understanding of hazards involved in the task of course so there's this there's that important side side effect as well but over proceduralizing everything yeah, it, it it's demotivating we found for for the people in in in, in work situations it makes it really hard to separate out which are the key procedures that you do have to follow and which are there just as fluff in the system what 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 do we need what do we not need do certain things belong in procedures or are they more part of a competency assurance process that you just make sure that people are trained in how to do something and why the why being about avoiding certain hazards so definitely agree that over proceduralizing everything doesn't lead to the best outcomes and, and is potentially driven by just legally covering the organization's backside. And I, we had a procedure that covered this and then the person wasn't following the procedure, but a good a learning approach to situations like that happening is not by punishing the person that wasn't following the procedure, but by starting a conversation as to, but what is it about the procedure that made you not follow it mm. and it could well be they were not even aware that that was their procedure in the case of too many procedures that the procedure is out of date that the procedure is written by somebody who's not actually familiar with the task so it's not fit for purpose we found a whole myriad of reasons why why people would not use procedures or did not like procedures all the kinds of things that could be wrong with procedures so learning approach in in improving procedure systems is is really key to to resolving that situation and then tom then then there's our fellow podcasters david proven and drew ray from 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 over at griffith university they they have a couple of podcasts i think by now on on the topic of safety clutter mm, mm. So that's right. That's right. They yeah. they have advice very very much worth listening to around procedures as well. If 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 you wanted to learn more about this, absolutely, absolutely. All right, Lizette. If we haven't even covered half the questions I, I prepared, which is a bit scary, but we're running out of time. So uh, would love to have you on again sometime. Might might let you catch your breath for a few months, <laughs> at least. By now. then, I might have a few more research projects to talk about too. Oh, that, that would that, that would, would be, be awesome. appreciated. I would I would love to come back and chat with you more. Fantastic. All right, but for now, Lizette, we're going to have to wind it up, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon, though. Same here, Tom. Thanks so much for organising this talk. Take care. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.